This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. I've got this thing growing on my leg and I haven't been able to go to the doctor because I can't afford insurance. Either. Yeah, good to know. But the reality is there's going to be pros and cons for every program. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we talk to an expert on making sense of your grad school acceptance letters. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 109. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Greetings, Dan. Joshua, good evening. Good evening. Dan, I reached all the way in the back of the fridge to pull out this beer that I think you brought us months ago. I don't recognize it. Tell me about it. You don't remember bringing this over? I mean, I've I've brought beer over before. Yeah, all I remember is I think you brought this from some trip you were on, but it was during the IPA free fall, so we were not allowed to have it on the show. Oh, it's forbidden. That's right. And somehow I... You know, this might be from my summer beach trip. Oh, it's possible it's that long ago. Well, I should check the expiration date on the can. Uh, it. it looks good. I think it's still good. Uh, but I, I always put Dan podcast beer in the back of the fridge, and I kind of hide it so my grubby friends, when they come over, they don't. They know they can have beer in the door, but it is not okay, in the back. Yep. But the beer in the back is podcast beer. So I actually did have a. I had a friend who was visiting from California, and uh, he came over, and we were playing some board games, and he knew, you know, beer in the fridge was up for grabs. And he comes walking back in, and he's carrying a uh, dogfish head 120-minute IPA in his hand. <laughs> he was like, what's this? Oh, no. <laughs> and he'd opened it. He was like, that's like Turn that's $30. Back. <laughs> <laughs> Guess we're drinking that Hope tonight. Hope you enjoyed it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this one, I, I am recalling now, my brother brought this to us from Massachusetts. So, hello, Tom. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Tom. Well, let me tell you a little bit about this, Dan, because... Despite the fact that this beer was hibernating in the back of my fridge, I actually learned something about beer that I had never heard of before. Do tell. Okay. So this is called, we should, we should say this, this is called the Boom Sauce IPA, spelled like it sounds, Boom. Boom Sauce. sauce. And this is the flagship IPA from Lord Hobo Brewing Company uh, in, actually I didn't look, in Massachusetts? Massachusetts. Yeah, in Woburn, Massachusetts. And so the marketing speak is that their flagship IPA features six hop varietals and a blend of spelt, oat, and wheat. Spelt? Spelt, yeah. That's a grain. When I first read that, I thought it was smelt. I thought that was gross. That'd be a little bad, yeah. yeah. Those are Spelt's fish, all right. right. Yeah. Um, a late hop edition of Mosaic, Falconer's Flight, and Amarillo delivers a notable citrus and tropical fruit finish. So here's, here's what I learned, Dan. So this one comes in at 7.8% uh, ABV, 78 IBUs. That's all standard. But then it comes in at a two on the SRM scale. You're going to have to explain that Have you one. heard of that? Uh, no. It's just listed. Two SRM. What's SRM? Well, it turns out SRM is a measure called the Standard Reference Method, abbreviated SRM, and it's a color system used by brewers on finished beer to uh, dictate the color profile. Oh, so whenever we say this is copper or amber or gold, we could have an SRM profile. Need an SRM profile. Although it doesn't seem to be often provided, but Dan, I have good news, and this is sort of science related. So you can actually measure the SRM value is 12.7 times the log of the attenuation of light at a wavelength of 430 nanometers passing through one centimeter of the beer. So we need a spectrophotometer we do. to do At this? Set to 430 nanometers. Do you nanometers. have one lying around? Well, I know people who do, so what I'm going to start doing is taking a sample of beer into the lab. One centimeter. That's all we can spare. <laughs> uh, but anyway, I will tell you, Dan, I mentioned this beer. Uh, how would you describe this beer, Dan, looking at the color? I would call it golden. Yeah, sort of golden. Well, this is an SRM of two, and I looked it up, Dan, and the lowest measure of one to three SRM is pale yellow color. Okay. A three to 4.5 is you're saying is this a, is a two? Is a two, so right in the middle of pale yellow, but this is not as dark as medium yellow, which starts at a three. 
Oh my gosh, I've been I've been lied to all these years about what color beer is. Yeah, and this goes all the way up. So just to refer, just to um, calibrate you a little bit, this is a two. The scale goes all the way to twenty, which is black. So like a port porter or a stout. Yep. So a brown ale, a brown beer would be a fourteen to nineteen, and then twenty would be a total black Guinness. So, I know. I guess I don't know. Pretty fascinating, huh? Okay. Well, we need to use this from now on. I know. Never knew that. Now so. keep take a mental note of the color of this, so that the next time we get a oh that's true a beer a different shade we can reference off of this one that has been measured. There you go. Well, Dan, even though just as we don't always have all the answers about uh, beer color and clarity in grad school, we also don't always have all the answers. So true, Josh. <laughs> that's <why>. beautiful segue. <laughs> but, but that's okay to not have all the answers. It is. And in fact, when you have people like Promega and their technical support team who are there to answer all those random questions you might have, like, how do I interpret these results? What reagents should I be using? What does this protocol step even mean? So they actually have a team of scientists ready to help out other scientists. You can call or chat with them online anytime, and they'll help you get where you need to go with your experiments. Just check out promega.com slash PhD support. We need to see if they have a spectrophotometer that they're willing to put beer in. Ooh, maybe we should negotiate that. <laughs> we'll look into it. <laughs> okay. Dan, I also am happy to report that we have a new Patreon patron. It looks like Kim is a new patron. Yep. Special thanks to Kim for signing up and becoming a supporter of the show. And Kim has already joined and said hello in our Slack channel for our patrons. Fantastic. Well, we'll keep the conversation going. All right, Dan. Well, let's get into our topic today on navigating your offer letter. Josh, if you have been here each week and paying attention, you know that we have done a series on graduate school applications and interviews. Half of that's true. I have been here each week. Not necessarily paying attention. And so we've gotten through the part where you've applied and decided where you wanted to apply. And we've talked about personal statements and we've talked about um, the actual interview process. But we're coming into the season where people are getting these offer letters or emails. Hopefully. And... They're going to have information that, or, that should impact where you choose to go. And that information is financial. Um, and there's nobody we like better to ask these financial questions to than Emily Roberts. Yeah, that's what I love about Emily is she is someone who is very knowledgeable about all these um, financial topics that can be really intimidating and confusing. But she's she focuses her financial knowledge on people going through graduate school and, and postdoc type training experiences. So she's really the perfect person to talk to. Yep. Excellent. Well, let's listen to the interview and then we'll come back with some additional thoughts. Hi, I'm Emily Roberts. I'm delighted to be invited back on the show. Uh, I am a personal finance educator specializing in PhDs from the PhD training process through and post-degree, um, anywhere from post-bacs to post-docs. That's what I cover. And basically, I help people make the most of their money whether they're in graduate school or afterwards. Emily, welcome back. It's, it's, been, uh, Thank you. it's been not that long since you were on, so let me get people oriented here. Um, you first joined us way back in episode 33. We talked about tax season and what uh, graduate students and postdocs needed to know about taxes. We've talked about targeted savings accounts in episode 68. We talked about investing for retirement in episode 89. And you even joined us in our celebratory 100th episode. You came to our party. So you are the most featured guest on the Hello PhD podcast. Thank you for, for doing if that. If my memory serves me correctly, you brought the deviled eggs. True. That yeah, is absolutely delicious. correct. And you know what? That was the best podcast party I have ever attended. Best Fantastic. and only. <laughs> best and we'll only. We'll take it. We, yep. We'll take yep. any kind of accolade. Oh, and you guys inspired me to start my own podcast. That's right. We want to, um, we're going to give you a chance to tell everybody about that because I think there's such a need to understand finance uh, more broadly than, you know, the, the 30 or 40 minutes that we can give it once a year, it seems like. Uh, why don't you say what that, what that podcast is just so people can get it in their heads and then we'll say it again later. Yeah, my brand name is Personal Finance for PhDs. So that's the name of the podcast. Um, and it, you know, you can find it on my website as well, pf4phds.com. Awesome. Well, people will go look that up. Emily, we invited you today because we've been doing this series on admissions. We were, we've talked about how to decide where you want to apply. We've talked about how to fill out an application, how to write a personal statement. Uh, and we're getting into this season where people are about to get those 
emails, I'm told, not letters in a fat envelope. <laughs> they're, they're packets. And 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 we've we've talked about interviews as well. So people may be getting a sense of where they want to spend the next five or a hundred years of their life. And now it's going to come down to kind of the the softer things. It's it's how do I like this location? And is there a lab for me? And oh yeah, can I afford to do this? And we wanted yeah. to get your advice on that. Yeah. And there's, I mean, I guess a lot of people are, are going to hopefully, if, if they've listened to our podcast and things have gone well, they're going to start getting these acceptance offers and and that that's what we hope to talk to you about today is is you know not only do you get that offer like hey join our grad program yes or no but there's a lot of other information in that offer um, some of it's financial and some of it's confusing and so we hope you could clarify some of that for our listeners today yes absolutely I can I know you guys have plenty of experience with this as well so we can we can all bring our our insight these letters that come I mean it's so flattering especially when you get that first one, like before that, you're not sure if you're going to get in anywhere, right? That They the love me. Totally they really unknown. love me. The answer is yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Does it come with a yeah. rose like The Bachelor? I always, you know, I think you should say yes first and then read it later. Yeah. Like after idea. you get there, right? <laughs> we invite yeah, you I mean, to it's... never speak to us again. <laughs> you're paying us to come. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's so flattering. And the thing is that these these offer letters can sometimes have enormous numbers in them, like tens of like $50,000, $70,000 numbers. And uh, that's not your salary. <laughs> Don't think that right off the bat. These letters have to be read really, really carefully and kind of interrogated to really figure out what, they, what, they're, what you're being offered and how does it compare across different you know, universities or different programs because they might all sort of structure their letters differently but there are some common elements that you really need to figure out before you decide to accept anything. So that's what we're going to be discussing. What are these common elements? And if they're not directly in the letter, you're going to have to do a little bit more legwork to uncover you know, the answers to these questions. So there's no standard here. This is not like my credit card statement that tells me my APR rate and my how much I owe and how long it would take me to pay off my balance. Yeah, I don't think there's no federal requirement for every graduate school offer letter must contain Big number in the top in left-hand uh, corner. Format. Salary, yeah. If... If only. I mean, there's definitely some commonality. So if you're going to um, a program that's going to be paying you to be there, as probably most or all of your listeners are expecting, uh, there's going to be some figure about your salary. It's probably called a stipend in most cases, but something about you know the money that's actually for your living expenses. That figure should be in there somewhere. Yeah. So let's talk about that first, because I think, um, and just thinking back on my own experience you know, that's the number that I remember being the most interested in. And I think that's the one that we gravitate towards. It's our salary. It's the amount of money that you're going to make each year um, as a student that is going to be most of what you're going to be living on. I think I think what I hear you saying is that's not the only thing you should pay attention to, but am I, am I wrong in thinking that's probably the first thing that jumps out at, at people when they get that offer? You are totally right. That is the headline. That is the most important factor. Not Not the only one, but definitely the the first one you should be looking at. Of course, it's very important to put that number in context, especially once you start, you know, comparing across these different offers because, you know, the cost of living of various different cities can vary so widely. What kind of range should we expect though in terms of um, a, a fellowship or a stipend for a biomedical PhD program? Because I'm sure there's a wide range, right? Yeah, we should probably say from the beginning too. I imagine there's a huge range depending on the the field that you're in, right? Yes, there absolutely is. A lot of the factors that we'll talk about will vary quite widely across the field. Thankfully, I am fairly familiar with uh, you know biomedical programs. I I wasn't in one, but I was in a biomedical engineering program, so it was pretty similar. Um, so I think so. I referenced the data in phdstipends.com. This is a database website that that I own that we've had up for several years. Um, and so I just typed biomedical into the search bar there and came up with several pages of biomedically related stipends that have been entered over the past several years. And so if you're you know listening to this this year, obviously this this is going to be fairly recent, but if you're listening to this in future years, just go back to that site and you'll get the most, you know, updated figures. It will say this is this is 2019 in case someone's jumping in <laughs> from the yeah. future. 
Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, we're getting into the 2019, 2020 school year. Yeah. So looking there, what I was seeing in those numbers was that just about everyone was receiving, I would say, 80% of the local cost of living. And that translates to mm, probably $20,000 a year or more. That's the lower end. And then on the upper end, I was seeing stipends that were going into well into the 30s, $30,000 a year. And I even saw a couple in the 40s, believe it or not. Um, but that was when people were like stacking fellowship on top of fellowship. They, those were very like unusual situations. But I would say if you're landing somewhere in the higher 20s or even into the 30s, that's a pretty solid offer. But you really should compare it to the local cost of living. So phdstipends.com has... Um, what we call the living wage ratio, the LW ratio. And so it takes the stipend that, you know, that data point has and divides it by what is calculated to be the local living wage for the county that the university resides in. So it gives you a little bit of a way to normalize um, across all these different cities. I wish we would have had this conversation about three months ago because I was asked by my dean to pull all of that information that you just said you have on your website with cost of living and I was trying to figure out how to do that and I could have just gone to phdstipends.com and you had it all there already. So Yeah, so good to we know. use for that site we use um living ratios that are calculated from this really great tool. It's uh the URL is livingwage.mit.edu. And so what it does is it draws from I think a bunch of different data sources, but just about various, you know, what things cost, housing, uh, food, transportation. And so it kind of breaks down what this, based on their formula, what's the minimum you need to be spending in these various different areas of your budget to kind of get by in that area and adds it all up, factors in taxes and spits out what is considered to be the living wage for that particular county. Okay, that's a that's a very helpful comparison. So I'm I'm looking at I typed in cell biology here, and I see it ranges from about twenty three five to maybe thirty four thousand, which is a, those are very different numbers. But using that living wage ratio, I can see that the twenty three five they're they're over the the ratio um, with some of the other ones that are maybe thirty four it's in a more expensive place. And so that may not go as far. And that's a really helpful number to have on hand. Yeah, I think that ideally you would go somewhere that was giving you at least what the living wage is in that area. Now, some offers may be below that, but that's a good lower side standard to uh, compare to. So is there anything else I should think about, you know, as um, let's say I get multiple offers and they have different uh, stipend or salary amounts and I'm looking at the comparison to living wage, are there any other factors I should take in, into mind when I'm trying to compare those, those salary figures? I'd like to explain why I use the living wage figure because there are some other things you could use. So the reason that we picked this, this living wage uh, to use to compare you know, within our, our phdstipends.com database, you can also use various other tools that, that somehow capture the cost of living of a certain area. You know, CNN has a cost of living calculator. Payscale.com has a cost of living calculator. You can find a lot of them. But the reason I like this one is it's, it's on that minimum side of what people would spend. And also it assumes, I believe, that, that you're renting. So a lot of those other cost of living calculators are some mix of like owners and renters. And it makes the housing figures kind of wonky depending on exactly how the calculation is done. So I just think it's more like consistent and realistic for a grad student budget to use this, this living wage for each of these counties. The thing that you have to be a little bit careful about, you can't take the living wage as like the end-all be-all, you know, truth of the matter. It's just kind of like a starting point um, to do this, you know, initial comparison. What you really need to do is talk to the students on the ground. Um, and that's something you can do, you know, when you meet current graduate students on your visit weekend, or maybe you can do it over email later on. Um, but it's very important because, as I said, these living wages are for each different um, county. And sometimes counties can be pretty large and they can have cost of livings that range even within a single county. So it could be that, you know, the real estate near the university is at a higher premium than real estate further away. And that's something that the living wage is not going to tell you right off the bat. You need to figure that out by talking with people who actually live there. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, you know, I'm thinking even our own county where, you know, where my university is, is pretty large. And, you know, the parts of town where most grad students live near the university tends to be 
you know, much higher rent than if you live 30 minutes away. Yeah, the university is in the very far corner of the county and the other far corner of the county is a totally different world. So uh, it's a it's a good thing to keep in mind. And asking the students, you're exactly right on, they'll be able to tell you. I don't think they'll be able to say, oh yeah, I feel like I'm at a 1.44 living wage ratio, but they'll be able to say, you're going to need three roommates to live here, but some people live further out and they, you know, have a two bedroom. Yeah. And I'll say one thing we, one thing we do, you know, I'm involved in admissions for our institution is we actually poll our students from about every couple of years to get more recent data. And we share that during our recruitment weekends, we show a, a graph of here's what all of our students pay for rent. Those, here's how many rent, here's how many own, here's what they typically pay for rent. Um, here are the proportion that have their own place versus have a roommate. Uh, so it really gives really gives applicants a, a pretty strong idea of how much they can expect to pay based on what they what they hope their living arrangement to be while they're in graduate school. Um, so I think that's something. Hopefully, before you make a decision to move somewhere, you can if they haven't given you that information, you should at least ask. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic research I, resource. I think you guys are probably a little bit going above and beyond that may be setting the bar for what other universities need to do. But absolutely, if that if that information has already been packaged for you, of course, like look into that. I think the you know the most important expense to consider, definitely prior to moving to your graduate school, but I would hope even prior to accepting one offer versus another, if you're sort of weighing a few, is the cost of housing because that's going to be the biggest rock the biggest weight in the middle of all of your spending, uh, almost certainly. So figuring out what you're going to spend on housing, and as you were just saying, what you have to do to spend that much, like how the distance you have to live away, the number of people you have to live with, the type of housing. Um, how much it costs to commute if you have to commute? I mean, uh, gas prices can be a major impact. Yeah. Is it worth it to pay a little bit more in housing to be able to live car free, for example, or maybe it works better the other way? You know, it, it's very, very city dependent. Again, something that the graduate students that you meet on these visit weekends will be able to tell you. And like, really, if you're very, very seriously considering a place or you've, you've already decided to accept, um, start asking people what they pay in rent. I mean, I don't, I've never had a grad student balk at answering that question. So I'm, I'm interested to know what, what other types of things are in that offer letter that that maybe I should think about. You promised us fifty thousand and seventy thousand dollars in our offer letter. <laughs> so what is going on? Yeah, we're in the twenty yeah. to thirty range right now, so we've got some work to do. So the next big item is tuition and, and fees. Um, and the question for the you know the recipient of the offer letter should not be how much is tuition, but how much am I responsible for? So probably as a default within the biomedical sciences, your tuition and fees will be completely or very close to completely covered. But that very close to completely, you probably want to figure out what that means. Are you responsible for any portion of tuition? Are you responsible for any portion of your fees? So basically figure out how much money you have to, you know, reserve out of that stipend number, how much the university is just going to take right back from you. Yeah. And that could be a big chunk if you're not careful. I mean, I know tuition is not cheap. Yeah. And that's why I would hope that, you know, you're going to a place that's going to completely cover it. Um, or it's like, okay, we're going to cover 95% and that 5% is exactly this number and it's not too not too crazy. Um, of tu tuition is another thing that can change over the course of your PhD. So a lot of schools um, will charge a high tuition for the first couple of years. And then once you're like, I don't know what they call it, but basically a more established student, they start charging lower tuitions. This is pretty common. So hopefully you would get an idea of what you're responsible um, for year by year and it won't be it won't be everything either josh or emily i don't know who would know this back when we were in grad school there was a divide between what was paid for in-state and out-of-state tuition and the department picked it up but they were pretty aggressive toward trying to get us to be in-state residents so that the tuition for them would be lower is that still a divide and is there still the opportunity to try to claim residency I can speak directly to that. Yes, it's still the same. So I don't I don't know that it would be super important to this conversation, but absolutely I imagine other programs who have in-state and out-of-state tuition, we push hard for our students to apply early and often just because it lends it lessens the financial burden on the PIs and the training grants. Because um, someone because this is the thing, like even if a student is not paying tuition, someone is paying tuition. The tuition is not waived. Um, so usually it's coming out of the grant or whether the training grant or the PI's research grant. 
Um, Emily, have you talked to people in programs where the department didn't cover tuition and there was a big delta between in-state and out-of-state? No, not in that situation. This is very state-dependent and also, you know, university-dependent for the public universities. When this conversation was coming up a lot for me was actually in that initial um, proposal of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act at the end of 2017 when it was possible, yeah, when it was possible that some version of the higher education tax benefits would be disappearing. And there was a very important distinction in some states at some universities between what an in-state student and what an out-of-state student was, quote-unquote, paying in tuition. and, And they still weren't going to be paying it directly. But if it looked on their taxes, you know, if that became a taxable, you know, component of their income, that would have been a big, big difference between in-state and out-of-state at in in some places. So that that conversation was coming up a lot at that time. Um, I have not heard much about it since then. So I, you know, we that that change didn't come through. So we've sort of reverted to the norm from before then, where I think it is typical that as um, as you were saying, someone is picking up that tab, but the student, of course, should comply with the requests of the people who are paying them to establish residency as quickly as possible. And it also depends by state and by university what what it takes to establish residency. Uh, so I wanted to circle, circle back something else on tuition. So it seems like the norm is that for a lot of PhD students, the tuition is going to be covered. But it seems like there could be some variation in what you have to do to get that tuition coverage. Um, and that could vary from program to program versus you know, just by being a grad student in this program, they're going to pay for it on my behalf, or is there going to be some kind of additional requirement like a TA requirement um, that's going to be part of the deal for them paying my tuition? Is that something you've encountered as a difference from program to program? Yes, this is a very important thing that I don't think is given anywhere near enough attention by prospective graduate students as as it should be. Because, so there's a couple different ways that you might get this this funding deal of your stipend and your you know tuition and fees being paid for you. Um, one is that you may have some kind of work requirement, and that's if you're serving as um, a, a TA, you're you're teaching or helping to teach a class, or you're serving as a research assistant. Um, and there's two flavors of research assistant. One flavor, which is the most common in the biomedical sciences, is that you are working on work that will go into your dissertation. So it's kind of like your full-time endeavor, which you're being paid, you know, you're being paid for doing research, but the research also furthers your own goals as a student. So it's right, very... I think that's what Josh and I did. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very common in biomedical sciences. There are some kinds of programs um, where your RA is not the same as your dissertation. So you would be spending that 20 hours a week, or whatever, on somebody's grant doing work but it's not the same thing you're pursuing for your own education. Where are you supposed to find the hours for that? Uh, I guess this is not your problem, but that's interesting and something that that they should ask. Am I going to be asked to divide my time? Yeah, it's similar if you have a TA responsibility. So a lot of those are officially capped at 20 hours a week. That's a very common um, dividing point. Sometimes if it's like a half TA ship or something, it'll be 10 hours a week. Um, I think it's pretty much up to the program whether that is an actual reasonable expectation or enforced or or what it is. Um, that's going to vary a lot. So those those two things you might do, a TA or an RA type position. But it sounds like it's really important to to make sure you have information about the TA requirement that you may or may not have to do. Because um, that could vary quite a bit from program to program, but could have a big impact on how you spend you're going to be required to spend your time as a grad student. Completely. So the other way that you might be funded is through a fellowship. And a fellowship is not officially, a. it's not like officially you're required to be doing work, quote unquote. It's like this really weird tax-related distinction. A fellowship is an award that's been given to you to further your own educational uh, goals. So it can feel like, I think especially in the biomedical sciences and similar types of programs, that if you're an RA or you're a fellowship student, those are like the same thing. Like you're spending all your time working for on your own research. Yeah, the outcome is the same. You're in the lab. Yeah, exactly. So those can feel very, very similar. But uh, in terms of the tax implications and so forth, they're actually very different types of you know, ways that you're being paid. But as you were just saying, there's a 
a big, big difference between a PhD that's completely funded, let's say, by fellowship or RA positions where you're working on your own dissertation work versus being expected to TA every single semester. I mean, that you're basically spending half your time doing something that has nothing to do with your dissertation. So important to know that before you choose a school, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking if I had two offers and but I knew that one of them was going to have me TAing a class every semester for three or four years, and the other one had no such requirement that couldn't have big implications on how quickly I'm able to <laughs> Yeah, absolutely, how, how quickly you finish your PhD, but perhaps you're really interested in teaching, and it's a perfect way for you to be guaranteed to have a spot to do that where your PI can't tell you not mm-hmm. to teach, right? So no, that's true. I, I yeah. can see it going either way, but, it, but you, going in, seeing fellowship, research assistant, TA, and understanding where my money's coming from would be really helpful as I choose. Yes, exactly. Um, you, you make great points. Like, of course, TAing for some people is going to be attractive. They're looking for those opportunities. Whether they want to do it every single semester for the entire time, that's kind of another question. Um, but yeah, fellowship or basically having choice over your time is kind of the best thing. So I want to talk a little bit about, um, you mentioned it earlier, uh, what sort of lumped in with tuition was this talk of fees. Tuition seems like a pretty standard thing to think about, but fees, uh, just from what I know of fees, there's a lot of variability from institution to institution, what those fees actually cover and the fees that a grad student pays versus an undergrad. is Are they the same? Are they more? Are they less? What do you know about fees and how much should I pay attention to, to fees being covered or not by my program? It is a, a really good question. There's been, I know of um, one example where in recent years, so at some public institutions, there's like caps on how much the school can actually charge in tuition, but there are, or like there's a scale by, you know, how fast it can increase, but fees are kind of like a free for all. <laughs> um, and so I, I know of one state where, you know, the state was really squeezing the universities and the universities ended up raising fees really, really quickly. And so some PhD students, who entered, you know, year one, they had a reasonable package, their stipend was, you know, covering a lot, their fees were reasonable. But by year five, the fees had risen and they were responsible for these. The fees had risen to such a degree that it was no longer a tenable financial situation. So that's, I'm not going to say that's common, but it is just something to be aware of that like, this sort of goes to a larger point. The package that you are offered in your first year is not necessarily the same one that's going to be in place all through your PhD. And so to the degree that you can figure out what that path of funding is, um, you should, but just also be aware that things can change. You know, it's not everyone is in perfect control of uh, all of these different factors. And so, yeah, you, you may end up with a different situation a few years down the line than you started with. But at the beginning, I think the biggest thing is just to figure out exactly what you're being offered and what the what is the reasonable expectation of that path throughout the five or more years of the PhD? Like if you're funded by fellowship for the first year or two, awesome. What's going to happen after that? Are you expected to become an RA? Are you expected to become a TA? That's just vital information to know. Your stipend can also change. So sometimes you might be given like a sweet fellowship offer, very attractive, very prestigious in the first year. Well, what if that extra little fellowship bit of money went away in your second year, but you didn't realize that was going to happen? Like, that's why it's so important to figure these things out so you don't commit to housing, for example, that's uh, not going to be within your budget in your second and so on years. Are there signing bonuses, moving bonuses, relocation bonuses? Does that ever happen? I, I have heard of this, yes. Um, again, I'm, I don't, I don't want to say it's common. I've heard about it from time to time. Yeah, I mean, I know... You know, working with students who are applying to graduate school for the last few years, those things definitely do exist, but are pretty variable from program to program. I've I've seen some programs that do offer a thousand or more dollars to help with moving expenses, maybe of all students. Uh, but then I've certainly seen institutions use these signing bonuses or um, first year fellowships as almost like recruitment carrots to dangle in front of uh, certain applicants faces to try to persuade them to come to their institution. So we'll give you a little financial bump in the first year. We'll give you a one-time fee. And I've even seen some that will increase your stipend over a five-year period as sort of a signing bonus. Is it negotiable? That's a topic for another day. Um, it can be. Um, I don't, I don't know that so I want awesome. to give this impression. Yeah, because, exactly. Because the, rea- so the reality is 
a lot of programs. I think private institutions tend to be more aggressive because they have more finances flexibility, that are, right? that are flexible than we do at state institutions. But, you know, I've seen programs offer students as much as an extra $3,000 a year on top of their stipend for five years. But those are usually reserved for like the top of the top applicants that everybody's fighting over. So yeah. And, and drinks are on that person for the next five years. <laughs> yeah. So if you're one of those applicants that's getting those types of offers, you might have some negotiation room, but you know, I think our run of the mill student who we make an offer to, there's not a lot of room for not a lot of wiggle. Yeah. We're like, yes or no, you know, I, I was actually really interested in that discussion. I was going to ask you about that any, anyway today, Josh, because I, I'm publishing an episode about negotiating stipends um, next, like a week from today. Mm-hmm. And I, I have the same idea about it as you do, that like if, if you're a, you know, a really hot commodity, then at some places they may be able to sweeten the deal a little bit. Um, but it's not something that is going to be available to you know, the masses. Yeah. And you know what? I think if you have, let's say you have five, you know, five or more interview offers and that's no magic number. I'm just saying, let's say you have a lot of offers and you're sincerely trying to decide. I mean, it can't hurt to ask. They're not going to take your offer away just by asking. Um, You know, you don't want to ask it in a weird way. Try me, Josh. (laughs) This sounds like a challenge. Um, You know, you (laughs) could say, you know, I have multiple offers. I'm really interested in your program and I'm trying to decide and, you know, it's almost like negotiating for a car. You know, let's say one program has offered you this fellowship that gives you an additional couple thousand dollars in the first year. You could go back to some of the other programs that you're also interested in and just say, hey, I've been offered this from this other school, but I'm really interested in your school. Do you offer anything like that? And the worst that they can say is no. And, and the answer might truly be no. I mean, you know, I'll say a lot of programs like ours, you know, we are a one first year umbrella program. And so, we don't have a lot of flexibility with bumping the stipends of specific students because ultimately those students are going to join other labs and other programs. And we, you may inadvertently hurt the student because they become more expensive than their peers <laughs> because it, it just depends where the funding's coming from. Mm-hmm. That being said, I think all institutions have fellowships that are available for programs to give out to potential students. And so um, that's something we certainly do for some of our top. That may not be as encumbered as the the general funds. Yeah. That extra money has a different funding source that's outside the program. So, and I think the important thing, the important thing for the student though, is just to understand, was that a one-time bonus or was it some, you know, is it something that's going to continue? That has to be really clear because it's, awesome if they can get an extra few thousand dollars in that first year to, you know, help with those movie expenses, whatever it is. Um, it just has to be com- treated as like a complete windfall that does not affect your actual ongoing standard of living. Yeah. And in my experience, those one-time first year signing bonus type situations are much more common than the ongoing um, bump every year. Cause usually there's a pot of money that's just there for that purpose to recruit students to say yes but you're absolutely right. You can't set your standard of living for the whole, your whole time in grad school based on that initial first year bump. Uh, yeah. I was just gonna say you, you can't, you can't uh, let it, you know, run away with you. You have to just basically put it into savings. I would say, you know, make it into your emergency fund, use it for moving expenses, something that um, is totally a one-time thing. Okay. If I can change topics one more time, there's a big category of expense that I would not ignore uh, in a in a job offer or moving careers and that is healthcare is that part of the offer uh, it should be in the offer letter um, something about it maybe it doesn't have the numbers in there but it'll say something like you know your health insurance premium will be paid for you but the important thing for the student to figure out is again do they have any financial responsibility to paying the premiums on health insurance? Also, is is it just like medical insurance or is it dental and vision as well? Those things can be pretty high irregular expenses coming out of pocket if you do have to pay for them without insurance. So that could be something that really differentiates between different offers, uh, whether or not you're offered you know, full health insurance packages with dental and vision and everything, or whether it's more bare bones and whether you have to pay any component of the premium. Yeah. And no, I think that's really important to ask because that can be really expensive. That can huge, um, you know, compared and to getting worse. It seems like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one that maybe offers you 35,000, but you have to pay 
three or four hundred dollars a month in your health insurance premium versus one that only pays twenty nine thousand, but everything's included. Yeah, I'm sure for our listeners in Canada and most of Europe, they're just laughing right now. But for, <laughs> for us in the United States, it is a very expensive prospect. It's a sad reality that we do need to take these things into consideration. Um, now, that's I would say probably students who maybe have you know chronic conditions already something that they know is expensive to manage medically um that you know what exactly the health insurance is becomes a much more important question to really figure out before you accept the offer i think for most people you know grad students tend to be on the younger side if they're generally healthy um the coverage is probably not so much important it's more about the premium Mm -hmm. what is it going to be you know what does it cost you every year to maintain that insurance so what are the things? So we talked about the stipend and we talked about tuition and fees and health insurance and other forms of insurance. Is there anything else that, that I should be looking for in my offer letter? I think those those are the highlights. Um, there may be another minor one about maybe the offer letter will say something about um, conference and travel expenses being like reimbursed or a pot of money that's specifically available for that. That that's a cool like bonus area that you may may look at. But I would say the the last most important thing to consider is what we've already talked about a little bit, which is just how this offer is going to look in year two and year three and year four and year five, et cetera. Um, and if if the offer letter is not clear about that, what the expected path is, that's what you need to talk with your DGS about, talk with the admins in the department, talk with current graduate students to figure out what typically happens. Yeah, I mean, I know what you wouldn't want to happen is, you know, you have this great offer and and years one and two, and then you didn't fully understand or appreciate that by your third year, it was up to you to get some sort of external funding to guarantee yourself staying in the program and getting paid. That would be a bad surprise. To get. Yeah, that's that's one thing that could happen if you're expected to come up with your own funding. Um, another thing is that maybe, you know, in your first year, and this is common with biomedical programs, um, you know, you're doing rotations and you have to secure a position in a lab. Maybe that doesn't happen for you. Like, where's your, like, where's your funding going to come from in that case if you can't find an advisor right away? Um, are they going to be able to cover you for a little bit longer until you find someone? Are you ultimately going to be kicked out of the program? My question around that is just more so like, does that ever happen in this program? Like, do they admit kind of more people than they really should? Or is it, no, like everyone finds their place, it all works out, everything's cool? No, we have definitely talked to graduate students who came in bright-eyed and hopeful and then hit that wall in year three when the funding dried up and um, students had to leave. So it's a a real issue that goes on at certain universities and it's worth asking probably the students about, uh, do they know other students who were not able to secure funding in their third year or fourth year or whenever it was and had to leave the program? Because those are, those are war wounds that they will be able to share the story on. And and I think just to be really clear, and and this is a very fair question to ask. I I think a lot, a lot of these, the answers to a lot of these questions it's really great to try to get this information while you're doing your interviews versus, you know, certainly waiting and later it's harder, that, yeah. that offer letter. But I, th- I think one way you could simply ask is, you know, as a graduate student in this program, is my funding guaranteed for my entire time in the program? And, and the answer, I think the best case scenario answer you're looking for is, you know, as long as you're in academic good standing, then your funding will be guaranteed, even in the case that your your PI were to lose their own independent funding, that the department or the program would actually have funds to to take care of you and bridge you to finish your PhD. Um, and certainly, I know programs do that. So I think that's what you would ultimately want to know. I've, I've kind of always waffled on this, is the word guarantee in your offer letter a question? I mean, if it's there, that's like wonderful. I, based on my experience in the, you know, getting admitted to various different biomedical engineering programs, I did not receive guarantees at every one of those universities. But in asking around about it, it was more like the guarantee doesn't need to be there because it it does kind of work out. Like they don't phrase it that way, but I don't know. There is support there. It's like not been the case that students are left without funding. So I think it depends on the track record of the program. So if the guarantee is there, that's great. You're solid. Well, you know, as <laughs> you best should you can be as solid point. as you could hope to be, right? Yeah, things change. Um, but if the guarantee is not there, then that's when, as you were just saying, you have to go probably to the students and ask, 
how many people do you know who have dropped out because, you know, their funding, you know, they couldn't secure it. Like, what's the deal? The students will be upfront <laughs> about that situation. Yeah, no, definitely. All right. Now, this has all been been really great information. Um, I feel like this is just the beginning of so many decisions and quandaries and conversations about finance. So once our, our hypothetical student chooses a program, uh, maybe they know what their stipend will be. Maybe they know roughly what the cost of housing will be. But the actual day-to-day decisions about getting through that are not trivial. And many students haven't been exposed to, to making those decisions before. So um, we're very pleased, Emily, to have you give us advice. But where can people learn more about those next five years of making a decision as a PhD and trying to keep your finances in line? Absolutely. That's completely, you know, my mission. Why That's you're what doing I'm here, it. What I'm here doing. Um, yeah, my website is really the best place to go. Again, it's pfforphds.com. Um, I have tons of stuff there about um, budgeting, about, you know, we talked about those irregular expenses and targeted savings accounts on a previous episode. That's a great one to check out if you're starting to put together um, a budget in graduate school and you're wondering like, well, you know, does this budget really encompass everything? Am I missing some components? That one will help you figure out about those expenses that come up, you know, once a year or so. Um, yeah, I really talk a lot about investing um, and taxes on my website. Those are my two favorite subjects. So especially if you are, well, anyone who's receiving a stipend, I would say, especially if it's over, you know, the living wage for that area, you need to be thinking about that saving and investing component of your financial plan. If your stipend is below the living wage, you know, keep your head above water, do the best you can. But if you're getting above that, I think it's time to think about, you know, having some aspirational goals for your finances during graduate school. Um, I do want to leave you with one small budgeting tip. So as people are looking at these different stipend offers and trying to compare them and trying to figure out, okay, what's my housing going to be? And that is to, to think about the, uh, the balanced money formula. And so that's a a very common budgeting tool. And so what it recommends is that of your net pay, that's your after-tax pay, that 50% of that should go towards needs. And that's like your housing and your food and transportation, all the contracts that you're in. 30% should go towards wants. So like going out to eat or like vacations or clothing beyond like the basics that you buy. And then that last 20% is um, savings that's being divided up in a couple different ways. So I would say that if you're if you're looking at that stipend figure and you take 50% of that for your for your needs and you can imagine housing and transportation taking up like more than 50% of that, um, that's when you have to start being really, really careful about the expenses that you lock yourself into when you're starting graduate school. So the first place that you rent and uh, whether or not you're going to buy a car and, and how new of a car, whether you're going to have a car at all. Those are the kinds of expenses that can lock you into like a path of spending a lot of money that you know may become overwhelming once you actually get on the ground and start doing the budgeting and managing the cash flow. So if those expenses look like they're going to be exceeding 50%, you need to take uh, more uh, strong measures to kind of tamp them down. That, that is awesome. Um, I really love that because I can do that math in my head and get a sense for how scared I should be and how, how many spreadsheets I need to make. Yeah, or, you know, even asking yourself a, a pretty straightforward question when you're moving to a new place, like, you know, can I afford to get my own place or should I really look for a roommate? You know, that those quick and dirty calculations could, I think, help you arrive at a, a reasonable answer to that. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm thinking as well. Because the biggest, I mean, the biggest thing you can do to reduce your housing expenses is to live with someone else. I mean, that's just the most, that's going to help you the most. Um, so yeah, if your rent and some of your other needs are getting over that 50% figure, to, in my mind, of course, personal finance is personal. You can do what you want. But to me, that's saying I need to live with a roommate. My rent will be far too high if I try to live by myself in those kinds of areas. And there are some cities, plenty of cities around the US where um, a grad stipend is just, it's, it's not going to let you live alone. I got married in my second year of grad school and it really reduced my living expenses. So Great advice. There, there you go. That's one. It has its downsides <laughs> find too. The, but, find the right know. person as fast <laughs> as you can. Uh, Emily, thank you so much uh, for coming back on the show again. I think you still hold the record for most appearances. She's on keeping Hello it going, Fishing. yeah. Yeah. Besides you, Dan, she uh, holds the record. And I want to remind everybody that Emily has her own podcast where she sa- shares more information about 
graduate school finances, but also stories from other graduate students and people who made it through to the other side and about how their life was impacted, how they made decisions about their budgets. Um, I think it's a, a nice approach to making it personal and making it memorable. So uh, definitely check out her podcast. Thank you so much. And, and it's my, my pleasure to be back again. I hope we keep doing this once per year. I think we will. Emily, good talking to you and we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Bye. Always great to hear from Emily. Yeah, we went pretty deep there, but I think it's important that we do because, you know, these episodes will live online forever. And I hope as long that, as there's an internet, I hope that people can come back uh, who are in that phase of their graduate training and making those decisions and get something useful out of it. So um, hopefully you enjoyed that and hopefully you got something out of it, even if you're at a different stage. But I really wanted to kind of push the boundaries on some of the finer details that you may not have thought about. And, and you know, Dan, we've talked a lot about every aspect of applying for graduate school over, over the last few months. And I feel like this, this topic that we, we went over today, I don't think this is really something we, we mentioned at all as far as deciding where you want to apply and things to ask about even on the interview. Was that intentional, Josh? Do you think people should think about how much money they're going to make before they well, decide where to go? I think actually we should have mentioned, I don't think we mentioned that on the interview episode, but as we talked about with Emily, I think on your interview is probably the best time to ask some of these questions about, is my stipend going to be covered for the most part the entire time I'm a grad student or am I going to have to write a grant at some point and it's going to be dependent on that? What if my PI loses funding? What's the insurance like? Do I have to actually pay out of pocket? I mean, certainly you can find the answers to those questions after the fact once you get your offer letter, but how much easier when you're actually there? Yeah, and that that first night out with the graduate students around some beer, you can ask some of the more personal (laughs) questions. How much do you pay in rent? (laughs) Or people like, I haven't... I've got this thing growing on my leg and I haven't been able to go to the doctor because I can't afford insurance. You know? Yeah, good to know. Good to know. Mental note. Um, but, here's, but here's what I want to talk about, Dan. Um, so, you know, we certainly went in depth with Emily on, on the different aspects of the offer and sort of comparing and contrasting different offers. And certainly you're going to have different stipend amounts and maybe some nuance about um, what's covered and how much is covered. But I think what I wanted to talk about just briefly here at the end is to what degree that should weigh your decision, ultimately, of which program to choose. So I'm assuming I've got two programs, A and B. I like A a little bit more, but the financial incentives aren't so great. I like B a little bit less, but maybe it's a better offer. Is that the, is that the setup? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking about. So maybe, yeah, institution how, A. How should it tip the balance? How, yeah, how scientifically, much difference? you know, I was a little more into the research going on in institution A. I connected with the faculty or the students a little more. But B, you know, I looked at Emily's cost of living, and I think my my financial situation would be a little more comfortable. At A, they ride bikes. At B, they have bikes with motors to help <laughs> up the hill. You get a free uh, you get a free subscription to one of those scooters. Yeah, those scooter scooters. subscription. That'd yeah, be all right. Yeah, um, I hate those scooters. That's a side. <laughs> anyway, so I don't know. Uh, so I thought we could just just hover there for a minute and and see what what you think about that, Dan. I would say I would have a hard time. Unless the the difference were $5,000 or more, I don't think I would let a school that had less for me in terms of the science, in terms of the people, in terms of the lifestyle, uh, I wouldn't let that break my, my mind. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, you know, I think you have to look at it from the point of view of, all right, why am I doing this in the first place? Why am I going to grad school? Because I think if my goal was just financial means... Well, right out of undergrad, maybe I wouldn't go straight to grad school. You know, maybe I could get a job that pays Save okay. Save up a little bit of money. Yeah. Find somebody to marry. <laughs> that was my strategy. Yeah. yeah. That's how you know you're not making much is when you're married to a, a, a beginning public school teacher and she's the breadwinner of the family. Yeah. I'd, I'd hate to have somebody earning, you know, just above the poverty level and miserable in their research when they could be earning just below the poverty level and <laughs> loving their research, right? Yeah, and, and you know, I think I think that's a that's an important point. You know, I think for a very small, modest difference, I can't say that I would um, choose a program based on on just the highest stipend alone. You know, and I think that's going to be different for everyone where that cutoff is, because again, at the end of the day, there's some reason you're going to graduate school, a certain type of training you want, or a certain type of degree, or a certain type of experience you want to get. And grad school is really hard, and grad school is 
staying motivated in grad school can be a real challenge. So I personally would want to go somewhere that I felt like I had the highest chance of staying engaged and staying motivated and coming out the other end closer to where I wanted to be for a long-term career. No, I think that's totally right. And I, I think there is a place where financially it's a deal breaker. So we didn't talk about it with Emily, but I think there are people who go into debt <laughs> in graduate school. They they rack up credit card debt. They have um, auto loans. Uh, people even buy houses in graduate school. And there are all, all sorts of debt they can take on. I, uh, you know, that is saddling you with a burden that you will pay for through the future, which is tough. The other side is you don't take on any debt, but you're kind of living hand to mouth and paycheck to paycheck. And you can't afford to get out and do some of the things you like to do. And so you're, you're miserable that way. And a lot of that can change based on just where in the country you are. So even a really high stipend, maybe in San Francisco, puts you in that hand to mouth category where a lower stipend in Cincinnati is more livable and you may be able to continue through five years of living like that. So it, it really does. It depends on the person, but so many factors to take into consideration. Yeah. And, and, you know, people have different situations too. And maybe we were operating a little bit from the assumption of someone not too far out of college who's maybe on their own, but, you know, certainly if you're going to be moving with a family or with children or others who are going to depend on you somewhat financially, then yeah, I mean that those financial decisions might weigh a little more heavily in your decision making. So again, I think it's a mix. All these features and variables go into a bucket together when you're ultimately making your decision. You know, there's the the faculty you met and if you had a good experience with them and the research is a good fit for what you want to do, it's maybe the other support you're going to get outside of the lab, the professional development you're going to be able to take advantage of. Um, what you thought of the students and the culture at that institution, and then the financial package, the town that you're, you're going to be living in, the cost of living, you know, and what's probably going to happen, unfortunately, because that's how life is, is you're going to have institution A, B, and C, and what you're really going to want to do is like, man, if I could just take those faculty from A, and then that culture, that that program from B, but then, man, that stipend and cost of living from it's, C. It's the Goldilocks. I could mix problem. them all together. That would be perfect. But the reality is there's going to be pros and cons for every program. And so I think really as if there are folks out there listening who are going on all these interviews, start to get a feel for what's important to you and list out all those things and start to prioritize them. Like what to me is most important. And there's no right or wrong answer. You know, what's most important to you, Dan, may not be what's most important to me. Yeah, I think most people deal with this pretty intuitively. I'd be curious to know whether you have ever talked to a student who says, man, I love I love this science, I love this program, but I just wish I had chosen this other university because they paid a little more. I can't imagine it. Yeah, just, I've never heard that before. So, so whatever decision-making process most people go through, it takes us into account and they adapt to it. I think the thing that, that would be different from person to person is what is their, their long-term debt load based on, on where they chose to go and how they chose to live while they were there. You know me, I am cheap beyond, beyond words. When I lived in grad school, I was saving money even on our tiny little stipend because um, I just pinched pennies. But uh, that wasn't true for everybody. And I think it's, it's such a personal thing that you're going you're gonna to find your groove and you're probably not going to regret it, regret your decision based on the stipend. Yeah, no, I totally agree. You know, Dan, sort of one last thing, talking about this decision-making process. You know, you mentioned for a lot of people, it's an intuitive process. And I think you're absolutely right. That was true for me too. I think at the end of the day, I think I tend to be a gut feeling person anyway. That's in my, my Myers-Briggs profile. I'm a feeler. I'm an F but actually, I've had students in the past, I think of one student in particular who was trying to make her decision of what school to go to. And she'd received four or five offers. And she showed me she had made this spreadsheet and she had all the schools on one side. And then she had all these factors that were important to her. And she had gone through and actually given them a numerical weighting for how important they were to her. And then for each of the schools, she gave them a number for how good they were at whatever feature it was. And then that computed this thing and it spit out these numbers for what schools were the best fit for her. And I thought that was sort of on the complete other end of the scale of taking a total quantitative approach to this decision. You know how to know if that works? How's that? If there, if you see the result and you're like, oh, that's what I wanted, 
then you had a gut intuition for what you wanted. Yeah, well, that's true. If you're disappointed, you know that your gut is saying something different from the spreadsheet. All right, Dan. So we, you know, as you said, we spent a lot of time really digging deep into the whole process of applying to graduate school. And this is likely not something that we're going to do every year. But, you know, I think for this period of time, um, I'm glad that we did it. I think we've learned a lot. Yeah, it'll change slowly over time. Some of the features will change and we'll cover those changes when they happen. Um, like we did with with the uh, Jobs Act. You know, we talked about that when it was pending. So, you know, we'll keep you up to date on these topics. But yeah, I don't think graduate admissions are going to turn on a dime and be totally different next year to you. Well, they were pretty different this year, Dan, with all those schools dropping the GRE. Oh, there you go. Well, we'll talk about that every week. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this has been great. Thanks to all our guests who helped us out um, and taught us so much about admissions. And Dan, thanks for bringing this boom sauce several months ago. And I'm glad that your refrigerator kept it safe in the back. Thanks for bringing the boom sauce. All right, Josh. <laughs> well, we'll see you next time. If you have a question or a topic idea, we'd love to hear it. Email us podcast at hellophd.com, send us a tweet at hellophd, or leave us a message on our Facebook page. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes. We love the feedback, and it helps new listeners find the show. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money. We also accept spectrophotometers, so if you have an extra one lying around, send it over. And we will use it on all we of our will beer. We use it. Uh, I think I have a nice spot here on the desk in the studio for a spectrophotometer. They're pretty big. Last I saw them. They, they had some small ones. Okay. I don't know. It's been a while since we've been out of the lab, Dan. Computers yeah, were the size true. of half a room when we were in the lab. <laughs> all right, Dan. I'll talk to you next time. We'll see you then. Josh is laughing because his cat is attacking me while you're sorry. speaking. <laughs> and he thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm trying to get my composure back. Uh, <laughs>